الله أكبر الله أكبر الله أكبر أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن لا أشهد أن محمد رسول الله أشهد أن محمد حيا على السلام حيا على
After reciting the Tishahud, Ta'uz, and Surah Al-Fatiha, Hazrat Khalid al-Masih V, Ayyadullah Ta'ala bin Sir Aziz stated, The name of the first companion that I will mention today is Hazrat Khalid bin Qais. Hazrat Khalid belonged to the Banu Bayada branch of the Khazraj tribe. His father's name was Qais bin Malik, while his mother's name was Salma bint Haritha. His wife was Umm Rabi, and they had a son called Abdul Rahman. According to Ibn Ishaq, he participated in the pledge that took place at Akbar along with 70 companions from among the Ansar. Hazrat Khalid also participated in the battles of Badr and Uhud. The second companion is Hazrat Haris bin Khazma, Ansari. His title was Abu Bishr. He belonged to the Khazraj tribe of the Ansar, who were confederates of the Banu Abdul Ashil tribe. His title was Abu Bishr. Hazrat Haris bin Khazma participated in all of the battles alongside the Holy Prophet, وسلم, including the battles of Badr, Uhud, and Khandak. The Holy Prophet ﷺ established a bond of brotherhood between Hazrat Haris bin Khazma and Hazrat Ayas bin Bukair. It is mentioned in history that during the Battle of the Book, the camel of the Holy Prophet ﷺ went missing. The hypocrites raised the allegation against the Holy Prophet ﷺ, saying, How can he have knowledge of the heavens when he does not even know where his camel is? 
when the Holy Prophet ﷺ came to know about this, he said, I only possess knowledge of those matters which God has informed me. He then said that God had informed him about his camel, that it was in the mountain pass of a certain valley. This incident has been mentioned before as well during the account of another companion. The companion who went in search of the camel according to the instructions of the Holy Prophet and brought it back was Hazrat Haris bin Khazma. He passed away in Medina in 40 Hijri during the Khilafat of Hazrat Ali at the age of 67. The next companion to be mentioned is Hazrat Khunais bin Huzafa. His title was Abu Huzafa. His mother's name was Daifa bint Hizian. He belonged to the Bani Saham bin Amr tribe. He accepted Islam before the Holy Prophet ﷺ went to Dari Arkham. Hazrat Khunais was the brother of Hazrat Abdullah bin Huzafa. Hazrat Khunais was among those Muslims who participated in the second migration to Abyssinia. He is considered among the foremost of the Muhajireen. When Hazrat Khunais first migrated to Medina, he stayed with Hazrat Rifa'a bin Abdul Munzir. The Holy Prophet established a bond of brotherhood between Hazrat Khunais and Hazrat Abu Abs bin Jabr. Hazrat Khunais participated in the Battle of Badr. Ummul Mu'mineen, Hazrat Hafsa, was married to Hazrat Khunais before she married the Holy Prophet ﷺ. The details of this are recorded in Seerat Khatam al-Nabiyyin as follows. Hazrat Umar had a daughter by the name of Hafsa, who was married to a faithful companion, Khunais bin Huzafa, who had partaken in the Battle of Badr. After Badr, upon returning to Medina, Khunais fell ill. He was unable to recover from his illness and passed away. Sometime after his demise, Hazrat Umar began to feel a sense of concern for her second marriage. At the time, Hafsa was over 20 years of age. Due to his simplicity in nature, Hazrat Umar met Usman bin Affan himself and mentioned that his daughter Hafsa was now a widow and that if he was interested, he could marry her. However, Hazrat Usman avoided the subject. After this, Hazrat Umar mentioned it to Hazrat Abu Bakr, but he too remained silent and did not respond. 
At this, Hazrat Umar was deeply saddened, and in this very state of dismay, he presented himself before the Holy Prophet ﷺ and submitted the entire account. The Holy Prophet ﷺ responded, O Umar, do not worry at all. If Allah so wills, Hafsa shall find a better husband than Usman and Abu Bakr. And Usman shall receive a better wife than Hafsa. The Holy Prophet ﷺ said this because he had already intended to marry Hafsa and to give his own daughter, Umm Kulthum, to Hazrat Usman in marriage. Both Hazrat Usman and Hazrat Abu Bakr were aware of this. They had already been told. And this is why they turned down the proposal of Hazrat Umar. Sometime thereafter, the Holy Prophet ﷺ married his daughter Umm Kulthum to Hazrat Usman. And this has already been mentioned above. Following this, the Holy Prophet ﷺ sent a proposal himself to Hazrat Umar for Hafsa. What more could Hazrat Umar have asked for? He very happily accepted this proposal. In Shaban 3 Hijri, Hazrat Hafsa was married to the Holy Prophet ﷺ and became a part of his household. When this marriage had taken place, Hazrat Abu Bakr said to Hazrat Umar, Perhaps your heart has been saddened on my account. Perhaps some grief and rancor has formed in your heart. The fact is that I was already aware of the intention of the Holy Prophet But I could not reveal his secret without permission of the Holy Prophet Of course, if the Holy Prophet ﷺ had not intended so, I would have most gladly married Hafsa. One special wisdom in marrying Hafsa was that she was the daughter of Hazrat Umar, who one could say was considered to be the most eminent companion after Hazrat Abu Bakr. And he was from among the most intimate friends of the Holy Prophet ﷺ. Hence, in order to further strengthen mutual relations and to alleviate the grievance of Hazrat Umar and Hafsa, which they sustained by the untimely demise of Khunais bin Huzafa, the Holy Prophet ﷺ deemed it appropriate to marry Hafsa himself. According to another narration, Hazrat Khunais bin Huzafa was wounded during the Battle of Uhud and some time later he passed away in Medina as a result of these wounds. The Holy Prophet ﷺ led his funeral prayer and buried him in Jannat al-Baqi, next to Hazrat Usman bin Maz'um. The name of the next companion to be mentioned is Hazrat Hasa bin Numan. His title was Abu Abdullah. Hazrat Harsa bin Noman was an Ansari companion. He belonged to the Banu Najjar clan of the Khazraj tribe. He participated alongside the Holy Prophet ﷺ in all battles, including the battles of Badr, Uhud and Khandak. 
He is considered among the leading companions. The name of the mother of Hazrat Harsa was Jada bint Ubayd. The children of Hazrat Harsa bin Numan are as follows. Abdullah, Abdurrahman, Sauda, Umrah and Umm Hisham. The name of their mother was Umm Khalid. His other children include Umm Kulthum, whose mother belonged to the tribe of Banu Abdullah bin Ghatfan, and Amtullah, whose mother belonged to the Banu Junda tribe. In another narration, Hazrat Ibn Abbas relates that Hazrat Harsa bin Nu'man passed by the Holy Prophet ﷺ. Gabriel was sitting beside him. The narration prior to this, which I did not mention, is rather brief and is as follows, that he passed by and said Salam, i.e. the Islamic greeting of peace, to which Gabriel said Wa alaykum as -salam. However, a detailed narration is as follows. Hazrat ibn Abbas relates that Hazrat Harsa bin Nu'man passed by the Holy Prophet Hazrat Gabriel was sitting beside him and the Holy Prophet was speaking to him in a low voice. Hartha did not say salam to him and Gabriel asked why he did not say salam. Afterwards, the Holy Prophet inquired from Hartha, when you were passing by, why did you not say salam? He replied, I saw a person beside you and you were speaking to him in a low voice. I did not deem it appropriate to interrupt your conversation, i.e. diverting his attention by saying salam. The Holy Prophet ﷺ asked, Did you see the person sitting beside me? He replied in the affirmative. Upon this, the Holy Prophet ﷺ said, It was Gabriel and he said that had the person extended the greeting of Salam, he would have replied to his greetings. Following this, Gabriel said, He is among those eighty individuals. The Holy Prophet ﷺ then asked Gabriel for the meaning of this, to which Gabriel replied, He is among those eighty individuals who remained steadfast alongside you during the Battle of Hunain. The responsibility of providing for him and providing for his offspring in paradise lies with God Almighty. Hence, the Holy Prophet ﷺ mentioned all of this to Harsa. Hazrat Aisha anha relates that the Holy Prophet ﷺ had great respect and honour for him. Hazrat Aisha also mentioned this about him in a narration that he used to treat his mother in the best manner and the Holy Prophet ﷺ advised that everyone ought to follow this virtuous example. Hazrat Harsa bin Nu'man's eyesight worsened gradually and towards his last years he lost his sight. He had tied a rope from the praying area to the door of his room. He used to keep a basket full of dates with him. Whenever a poor person, someone in need or a guest would come to see him and say salam, 
or whenever he considered someone to be in need, he would use that rope to walk from his prayer room to the door and give them some dates. His family members used to say to him that they can help him and carry it out on his behalf as his vision was worsening. He did not need to burden himself. However, he used to say, I heard from the Holy Prophet that helping the needy safeguards a person from an evil death. In a narration it is mentioned that the houses of Hazrat Harsa bin Norman were near the houses of the Holy Prophet He had several homes and properties and whenever there was a need, he would present his properties to the Holy Prophet according to the situation. Rather, he would give them permanently. On the occasions of weddings or due to other needs, whenever there was a need for accommodation, he would give his properties permanently. When Hazrat Ali married Hazrat Fatima, the Holy Prophet ﷺ instructed Hazrat Ali to search for a separate house for himself. Hazrat Ali found a house after his marriage to Hazrat Fatima. They settled there. Following this, the Holy Prophet ﷺ said to Hazrat Fatima, I wish to bring you close to me, that is, to find a house near him. Hazrat Fatima suggested to the Holy Prophet ﷺ if he could ask Harsa bin Norman to move elsewhere and they could move into his house. The Holy Prophet ﷺ responded, Harsa has moved for me on a number of occasions. He has some properties nearby and has vacated the properties near to me a few times. I feel embarrassed to ask him to move again. When Hazrat Harsa heard this, he moved out of his house to a new property. He then came to the Holy Prophet ﷺ and stated, O Messenger of Allah, I heard that you would like for Fatima to move closer to you. These houses of mine are the closest to your home from amongst all the houses of the Banu Najjar. My wealth and I are all for the sake of Allah and His Messenger. O Messenger of Allah, Please take any wealth of mine that you wish. Whatever you leave for me will be dearer to me than any wealth. The Holy Prophet ﷺ stated, Indeed, you have spoken the truth. May God shower his blessings upon you. Hence, the Holy Prophet ﷺ asked Hazrat Fatima to move into the house of Hazrat Harsa. Hazrat Mirza Bashir Ahmed Sahib has written some further details to this incident in the life and character of the Seal of the Prophets. He writes, Until now, Hazrat Ali perhaps lived with the Holy Prophet ﷺ in an apartment built next to the mosque. However, a separate abode was now required, where husband and wife could reside after marriage. Therefore, the Holy Prophet ﷺ instructed Hazrat Ali to find a place where both of them could reside. Hazrat Ali temporarily arranged for a home, and the Ruksatana of Hazrat Fatima took place. On the very same day after the Ruksatana, the Holy Prophet ﷺ visited their new home and called for some water to be brought for him, prayed on it and then sprinkled it on both Hazrat Fatima and Hazrat Ali whilst repeating the words, Allahumma barik fihima wa barik alayhima wa barika fi naslihima. Meaning, 
O my Allah, bless the mutual relations of both of them and bless those relations of both which are built with others and bless their progeny. Meaning he prayed for their mutual relations, their relations with their family members and the society at large and prayed for their progeny to be blessed. After this, the Holy Prophet ﷺ left the newly wedded couple alone and returned. Afterwards, one day when the Holy Prophet ﷺ came to visit Hazrat Fatima, she submitted to the Holy Prophet that Harsa bin Noman and Saadi was in possession of a few homes and asked if the Holy Prophet ﷺ would request him to vacate one of them. The Holy Prophet ﷺ said, He has already vacated so many homes for our sake. Now I feel embarrassed in requesting more of, of him. In some way or another, when Harsa happened to find out about this, he came running to the Holy Prophet and submitted, O Messenger of Allah, everything I own belongs to you, my Master. By God, whatever you accept of me causes me greater joy than that which remains with me. Then this faithful companion insisted and vacated one of his homes and presented it to the Holy Prophet after this, Hazrat Ali and Hazrat Fatima moved into this house. Hazrat Aisha narrates, On the day of Hunayn, the Holy Prophet ﷺ addressed the companions and stated, Who amongst you will be on watch at night? Hazrat Harsa bin Noman stood up slowly and calmly. It was not his habit to rush through anything. The companions commented on the slow and relaxed manner in which he stood up, stating, His modesty has tainted his habits. He should have stood up quickly on this occasion. The Holy Prophet ﷺ stated, Do not say such a thing. Rather, it would be true to say that modesty has saved Harsa. Hazrat Harsa bin Noman passed away during the rule of Hazrat Amir Muawiyah. The next companion is Hazrat Bashir bin Saad. His title was Abu Noman. His father was Saad bin Thalba and his brother's name was Hazrat Semak bin Saad. Hazrat Bashir bin Saad belonged to the Khazraj tribe. His mother was Unaysa bint Khalifa and his wife was Amra bint Rawaha. Hazrat Bashir bin Saad was literate during the Jahiliya i.e. the period before the advent of Islam, a time when very few among the Arabs knew how to read or write. He took part in the second Ba'ath at Akbar along with 70 companions. He participated in all battles alongside the Holy Prophet ﷺ, including the battles of Badr, Uhud and Khandak. In Shaban 7 Hijri, the Holy Prophet sent a group of 30 soldiers towards Fadak bin Murra under the leadership of Hazrat Bashir bin Saad. An intense battle ensued in which Hazrat Bashir fought valiantly. During the battle, he was struck on his ankle with a sword and it was assumed that he was martyred. The enemies had left him as they thought that he was unconscious or he was killed. However, in the evening he regained consciousness and came to Fadak, 
where he stayed a few days in the home of a Jew before returning to Medina. Similarly, in Shawal 7 Hijri, the Holy Prophet ﷺ sent him along with 300 men into Yumn and Juwad, which are located in between Fadak and the valley of Qura. This was the place where some people of Ghatfan had gathered with Uayna bin Hims al-Faradi and were devising schemes against Islam. Hazrat Bashir confronted them and they were dispersed. Some from among them were killed by the Muslim army and some were taken captive. They returned with the spoils of war. This expedition was a precautionary measure because these people would make plans to attack the Muslims and cause them harm. The purpose was not to kill them or to loot their wealth. As I mentioned in my previous sermon, that on one occasion the Holy Prophet ﷺ expressed great displeasure when some companions launched an unjustified attack and asked them why they had carried it out. There is a narration about Bashir bin Sa'ad from his son, Hazrat Numan bin Bashir, in which he said that his father brought him to the Holy Prophet ﷺ and stated, I have granted a servant to this son of mine. The Prophet of Allah ﷺ inquired, Have you granted the same to all your sons? He said, No. The Holy Prophet ﷺ then stated, then you should take the servant back. According to another narration, Hazrat Numan bin Bashir states, My father bestowed some of his wealth to me. Both of these narrations are from Bukhari. My mother Amra bin Rawaha stated, I will not be satisfied until you request the Holy Prophet to be a witness regarding this matter. My father came to the Holy Prophet ﷺ in order to request him to become a witness about the gift he had bestowed to me. The Holy Prophet ﷺ stated, Have you given the same to all of your children? Meaning, have you given everyone the same amount of wealth or the same gift? He responded, No. The Holy Prophet ﷺ then said, Fear Allah and treat your children in a just manner. My father then returned and took the gift back. Regarding this narration, in Sahih Muslim, it is written that the Holy Prophet ﷺ said, Do not ask me to be a witness about this, because I cannot be a witness over a transgression. While commenting upon this issue, or elaborating on this hadith, and explaining the act of giving a gift of this sort, Hazrat Muslim has elaborated on this very eloquently in his commentary, which serves as an excellent source of guidance. He states, In my opinion, this instruction of the Holy Prophet is regarding significant things and not about small, trivial matters. For example, if one is eating a banana and decides to share it with one of his children present at the time, it is possible that the other children are deprived of it. The examples used in the Hadith of the Holy Prophet are that of horses, money or slaves, i.e. something that has value. The Holy Prophet said to one person that he ought to either give a horse to each of one of his sons or do not give it to anyone. The reason for this 
was that in Arabia, horses were of great value. Slaves were also considered as property, and the same is true for any other wealth. Therefore, this prohibition is for expensive possessions, and Arabs considered horses to be precious. Thus, this commandment is about the things for which people can develop a grudge against one another. If a person gives something to one child and does not give the same to the others, this can become a source of contention between each other. As a Muslim states, this injunction is not for insignificant things. For example, if we take one child to the marketplace and purchase a piece of cloth for their coat, it is perfectly permissible. It cannot be said that until we purchase coats for all the children, no one should be given anything. He further states, Sometimes it so happens that we receive a gift and the child present at the time asks for that gift to be given to him. This does not mean that we have deprived the other children from this. Rather, whenever another present is received in the future, the other children will receive it. Hence this instruction is not about small insignificant objects. Rather, it is about things of importance in which any favorable treatment to one over the other can lead to feelings of resentment and ill-will between the involved persons. He then says, It is my practice to give away a portion of land to my children when they become adults, so they can pay their visiyat. This does not mean that I deprive others of their right. Instead, I intend to grant them with their share when they reach adulthood. Nonetheless, with regards to assets, they should not be of such significant value that if someone gives it away as a gift, resentment will take root between the related persons. In that case, it is the commandment of the Holy Quran that such a person should take their gift back, and it is incumbent upon other relatives to prevent such a person from committing this sin. A similar case about a gift was presented to Hazrat Muslim by Hazrat Mufti Muhammad Sadiq Sahib. At this, Hazrat Muslim Maud said that he would have to examine the Quranic principle of distribution of the property. The Holy Quran does not recognize gifts of this kind. Instead, the laws of inheritance have been stated and the shares of all the relevant parties have been determined. Sometimes people distribute their property and do not pay attention to these details. This leads to court cases and discord. And then he said that the shares determined in the Holy Quran cannot be changed. We should try to find the wisdom of the allocated shares. Why should all boys get equal share in inheritance? And owing to a complaint by a son, why did the Holy Prophet ﷺ order his father to either purchase that son a horse or to take back the one he had given his other son to? The wisdom is that in the same manner as children are required to obey their parents, parents are also obliged to treat their children and love them equally. But if the parents start showing favoritism and prefer one child over another, perhaps the children may not be guilty of failing to discharge their duty and will continue to give parents their rights, but they will not do so happily. They will do it as a chore, 
or as something they have to do to obey Allah's command, but will not be happy about it. He further says, The attitude of such parents is harmful and destroys the loving relationship between parents and children. That is why it has been forbidden. However, the will or gift that are not given to children but instead are given for the sake of Allah is permitted. You can also gift or leave inheritance to others who are not your direct heirs because the person making the gift is also denying himself that wealth. Not only do the children suffer, he sustains the loss himself too. As it is being spent in the cause of Allah, the children are not grieved or upset either. But if the gift is made to one child, it will be deemed unlawful. Another thing to understand is the concept of need at a particular given time. The example can be understood that if a man has four sons and he pays for his eldest son's education until he completes his master's, while the rest of his sons are studying in the lower years, in the meanwhile he loses his job or his income decreases and the education of his younger children has to be stopped. At this one cannot say that he showed favoritism towards the eldest son. It is a complete coincidence. His intention was to ensure his eldest son completed his master's, then also support his younger children to complete their master's as well, or to whichever level they are able to, meaning that he distributed his support according to the need of the time in good faith, awaiting the time when he would support the younger children too. But then his circumstances changed, and he could not do as he had planned. But if a father gives two thousand rupees to his eldest son, who has a family of his own, to start a business, but does not do the same for the others upon getting married, it would be wrong and discriminatory. Nonetheless, this is the jurisprudential law regarding gifts and certain inheritance. It should be kept in mind while making a will or a gift. During the battles of Khandak, the daughter of Bashir bin Saad, the account of whom is being discussed, narrates, My mother, Amra bint Rawaha, gave me some dates, placed in a cloth, and asked me to take them to my father and uncle, and to tell them it was for their breakfast. She says, I took those dates and started looking for my father and uncle. When I passed by the Holy Prophet ﷺ, he asked me, O oh, young girl, what have you brought? I told him about the dates which my mother had given to me to take to my father Bashir bin Saad and my uncle Abdullah bin Rawaha. The Holy Prophet ﷺ said, Give them to me. I placed them in both of his hands. He put them on one piece of cloth and covered them with another. He then asked a man to invite everyone to eat those dates. All those who were digging the trenches gathered and started eating them. The dates kept on increasing to the extent that when everyone had finished eating, 
they were still overflowing from that piece of cloth. This is how they were blessed. Hazrat Bashi participated alongside Hazrat Khalid bin Walid in the Battle of Ain al-Tamr during the Khilafat of Hazrat Abu Bakr in the year 12 Hijri, where he was martyred. Ain al-Tamr is a place near Kufa, which Muslims conquered during the time of Hazrat Abu Bakr. When the Holy Prophet set off for Umrah Qadha during Zulqada 7 Hijri, he sent the weapons ahead of him and placed Hazrat Bashir bin Saad in charge. The details of Umrah Qaza is that at the time of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, plans for Umrah were abandoned that year and the condition was that the Holy Prophet would not perform Umrah in that year. Instead, he would return the following year and stay in Mecca for three days. According to this condition of the pact, in 7 Hijri, he announced that he was going for Umrah and all those who were present during the journey of the previous year should accompany him. Thus, everyone participated in this except those who had died or were martyred during the Battle of Khaybar. So he was sent as an advance party with all the weapons. What was the need for the weapons? The detail is that because the Holy Prophet did not trust the Quraysh to stay true to the treaty. Therefore, he made full preparations for battle and took all the weapons he could with him. He made one of his companions, Abu Rahim Ghufadi, the Emir of Medina, and left for Mecca with 2,000 men, including 100 on horseback. 60 camels were taken along with for sacrifice. When the Meccans heard that the Holy Prophet ﷺ was coming prepared for war with all his weaponry, they became anxious and sent some men to Marra Zahran to investigate the matter. They met Muhammad bin Muslima, who was in charge of the riders, who assured them that the Holy Prophet would enter Mecca without his weapons, as per the dictates of the treaty. This satisfied the Quraysh. Thus, when the Holy Prophet arrived at Yajiz, a place eight miles short of Mecca, he left all his weapons in custody of a small contingent of companions under the command of Bashir bin Saad and kept only a single sword with him. He then entered Mecca with his companions reciting the Talbiyah. It is said that when the Holy Prophet entered the premises of Haram, out of jealousy, 
some of the disbelievers of the Quraysh could not bear watching the Muslims enter the Kaaba and went to the mountains. However, some of the disbelievers gathered in Darul Nadwa, the house in which they would form their committee and plot their schemes. There they stood looking at one another in astonishment as they beheld the Muslims performing the circuits of the Kaaba who were intoxicated in the love of the unity of God and His message. They began saying amongst themselves, How can these Muslims perform the circuits when they have suffered from starvation and been inflicted with the fever of Medina? They are very weak people indeed. The Holy Prophet reached the Masjid al-Haram and he covered himself with the cloth in a way that his right shoulder and arm became visible. He then said, May Allah send down his mercy on this and manifest his power before these disbelievers. That is to say that the Holy Prophet was aware of what the disbelievers were saying, and so therefore God Almighty should manifest his power to them in a way that the bodies which seem weak to them should be shown to them as strong with broad shoulders. The Holy Prophet ﷺ then walked swiftly along with his companions, moving their shoulders back and forth whilst performing the first three circuits. In Arabic, this is known as Ramal. Hence, this practice has continued to this day and will remain until the Day of Judgment, as each pilgrim performs the Ramal in his first three circuits of the Kaaba. This is therefore the reason for the way one walks at the beginning. With regards to how many Umrahs the Holy Prophet performed in his lifetime, the narrator in a hadith of Bukhari writes, I asked Hazrat Anas, how many Umrahs did the Holy Prophet ﷺ perform? He replied, four. Umrah Hudaybiyah in Dhulqadah. Despite the fact that they were not able to complete the Umrah, this is considered as Umrah as they made the sacrifices and shaved their heads, etc. So this is why some have counted it as an Umrah. He then says, The second was when the disbelievers stopped them during the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. This is also counted as an Umrah. The other one was in Zulkada the following year. In other words, apart from the sacrifices, etc., the second Umrah of Hudaybiyah was not completed in the first year, and the second Umrah was performed in Zulkada when the Holy Prophet ﷺ had made a truce with them. He then writes, Then there was Umrah Jirana, when the Holy Prophet ﷺ distributed the spoils of war. He says, In my opinion, this was when the spoils of the Battle of Hanayn were distributed. He also performed the Umrah on that occasion. I, I, the narrator, then asked, How many times did he perform the Hajj? As it understated, the Holy Prophet ﷺ only performed one Hajj, and on this occasion he also performed the Umrah. Hence, this is why some are of the opinion that he performed four Umrahs, and some say it was only two. Hazrat Bashir bin Saad was the first among the Ansar to take the oath of allegiance at the hands of Hazrat Abu Bakr on the day of Saqifa Banu Sa'da. What was Saqifa Banu Sa'da? It is recorded that this was the sitting area in Medina for the Banu Khazraj tribe. In that era, it was a room or an area with a shade. After the demise of the Holy Prophet the Banu Sa'da tribe held a sitting in Saqifa Banu Sa'da 
with regards to the successorship after him. Hazrat Umar was informed of this meeting and it is also mentioned that there was a chance of a spread of sedition at the hands of the hypocrites and the Ansar. Thereupon, Hazrat Umar took Hazrat Abu Bakr along with him to Sakifa Banu Saida. When they reached there, they discovered that the Banu Khazraj tribe had claimed to be the successors of the Holy Prophet, which was opposed to the Banu Aus. Both of these were the tribes of the Ansar in Medina. On this occasion, an Ansari related something he heard from the Holy Prophet ﷺ, that the leaders shall be from among the Quraysh, which was accepted by most of the people during this dispute. The Ansar therefore rescinded their claim and they all immediately performed the bayt at the hands of Hazrat Abu Bakr as the Khalifa. Yet, despite this, for three days, Hazrat Abu Bakr continued to proclaim that they were free from this bayt that took place at Sakifa Banu Saida, and that if anyone had any complaint about it, they should raise it now. Yet, no one had any protest to this. This was an extract from the book of Dr. Hamidullah, where this has been mentioned briefly. Further details of this has been mentioned as follows. When this whole incident took place, where the meetings were being held and the hypocrites were trying to cause a stir among the Ansar, Hazrat Umar and Hazrat Abu Bakr Siddiq reached at the scene, and upon their arrival, the Ansar presented their point of view. Hazrat Abu Bakr Siddiq also gave his opinion, and it is evident from this whole incident that the Ansar and the Muhajireen only had the benefit of Islam in mind. The hypocrites would have thought to themselves that they could cause sedition and mischief, but the believers from the Ansar as well were only thinking about the betterment of Islam. When they deliberated that the establishment of Khilafat or Imamat was necessary, whether it be from the Ansar or the Muhajireen, Furthermore, it was their wish for Khilafat to be established after the Holy Prophet ﷺ. And they did not want a single day to pass without there being a Jamaat or an Amir. For this reason, one opinion was that there should be an Amir from among the Ansar, whilst another view was that there should be one from the Muhajireen, as the Arabs would not accept anyone besides them. Apart from this, a third opinion was that there should be two Amirs, one from the Ansar and one from the Quraysh. At this point the Muhajireen told the Ansar that the Amir must only be from the Quraysh and in support of this view highlighted the instruction and prophecy of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, that after him there should be an Imam from among the Quraysh as has already been mentioned that Al-Aimmatu min Quraysh that the Imams will be from among the Quraysh. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah bin Jarrah addressed the Ansar by saying, O Ansar of Medina, you are those very people who have given the most in service to your faith. So do not now be the first to change your ways and go astray. Do not say that the Amir should be from the Ansar or from among both the groups. 
The Ansar were moved by this truthful message, and Bashir bin Saad, the companion being discussed at present, stood up from among them and addressed the Ansar by saying, O Ansar, by God, even though we have surpassed the Mahajirin in our faith in terms of waging our jihad against the idolaters, we have only achieved this through the grace of Allah, our obedience to His Messenger, and through the reformation of ourselves. It is not behove us to act with pride and to ask for such rewards that have a hint of worldly benefit instead of serving our faith. Our reward lies with God and that He is sufficient for us. The Holy Prophet was from the Quraysh and only they are truly deserving of Khilafat. Let it not be that we are in dispute with them. O Ansar, fear Allah the Almighty and quarrel not with the Muhajireen. Thereafter, Hazrat Hubab bin Munzir began stating the importance of the Ansar, but Hazrat Umar controlled the situation. I am mentioning the incident briefly and held the hand of Hazrat Abu Bakr, saying, Take our pledge of allegiance. And Hazrat Umar immediately took the oath of allegiance at the hand of Hazrat Abu Bakr. He said, O Abu Bakr, the Holy Prophet instructed you to lead the prayers, so you alone are the Khalifa. We pledge our allegiance to you because you are the most beloved to the Holy Prophet amongst us. Right after Hazrat Umar, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah bin Jarrah performed the bath, and from the Ansar, Hazrat Bashir bin Saad immediately took the oath of allegiance. Thereafter, Hazrat Zaid bin Thabit took the oath of allegiance. He then held the hand of Hazrat Abu Bakr and turned to the Ansar, telling them to perform the bet. Hence, the Ansar also pledged their allegiance to Hazrat Abu Bakr. This has been recorded in Islamic literature as bet saqifa and bet khasa Hazrat Abu Mas'ud Ansari relates that once we were in the company of Hazrat Saad bin Ubadah that the Holy Prophet arrived. Hazrat Bashir bin Saad inquired of the Holy Prophet that God Almighty has instructed us to invoke salutations upon you. How should we do this? The narrator states that the Holy Prophet became silent at this and remained silent for so long a time that he began to wish he had not asked the Prophet this question. Finally, the Prophet responded, saying, You should say, Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ala ali Muhammadin kama sallayta ala ali Ibrahima wa barik ala Muhammadin wa ala ali Muhammadin kama barakta ala ali Ibrahima fil alameen innaka hamidun majid. And you should say salam in the way that you already know. Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ala ali Muhammad wa barik wa sallim innaka hamidun majid. Now the account of the companions ends here for today. I would like to request prayers for something. Some days ago, preparations were underway for the annual convention in Bangladesh and the convention was to be held at a new place, a city called Ahmednagar. The scholars there, or I should say so-called scholars and opponents, caused a great stir and commotion. 
At first they urged the government to stop the event from taking place. And when the government did not comply, the mob attacked the homes and shops of Ahmadis, burning some homes and looting some shops. Some Ahmadis were also injured. Pray that may Allah the Almighty make the situation there better. And may He grant a swift and complete recovery to those that were injured. May He also make good all the material losses. And in future, whenever the date for the annual convention is decided, may they be enabled to hold it. After the prayers, I shall also be leading a funeral prayer for respected Siddiqa Begum Saiba of Dunyapur, Pakistan. She was the mother of Lake Ahmed Mushtaq Sahib, the missionary in charge of South America, and the wife of Sheikh Muzaffar Ahmed Sahib. She passed away on 1st of February at the age of 74. Surely to Allah we belong, and to Him shall we return. It was through his paternal grandfather, respected Sheikh Muhammad Sultan Sahib, that Ahmadi had entered their family. He was blessed with the ability to pledge allegiance in 1897 at the age of 24 years. The deceased was married on 29th of August 1964 and spent her entire life as an exemplary wife. Despite a modest income, she always remained content and dignified. Not only did she bring up her own children, she also arranged the marriages of her brothers and sisters-in-law. She always gave precedence to the comfort of others over her own. She was regular in her prayers and fasting. She was ever inclined to supplicating. She had a humble, cheerful and modest disposition looked after the poor, and was a pious and sincere woman. She was also regular in reciting the Holy Qur'an and also enjoyed the honour of having taught many Ahmadi girls its correct recitation. At her own expense, she paid for a hafiz to come to her home and help her daughter and two sons commit the entire Qur'an to memory. She had great love for the Holy Qur'an. Aside from having served as the president of the Women's Auxiliary Organisation in Dunyapur, she also had the honour of serving as a Secretary of Finance and Ishad. She had a deep connection of subservience with Khilafat and was a Musiya. She is survived by her husband, two daughters and five sons. Two of her sons are life devotees, of which one, as mentioned, is Lake Ahmed Mushtaq Sahib, currently serving in Suriname as missionary in charge of South America. At his mother's demise, he was not able to go to Pakistan. Her other son is Muhammad Walid Ahmed, a missionary of the community who is serving in Pakistan. She has a son-in-law, Muzaffar Ahmed Khalid Sahib, a missionary serving in the Islawar Shad Markaziya Ravwa, Pakistan. May God Almighty shower His forgiveness on her and have mercy upon the deceased and elevate her status. May He grant her children the ability to continue her good works and may He accept her prayers in their favour. Alhamdulillah, <laughs> 
ومن